no one marks this anniversary very much, but 61 years ago today, the Supreme Court made a ruling that dramatically changed the American education landscape. It reflected a tragic shift, really, in the nation's culture. And with its companion ruling in the next year, changed the everyday experience of millions of public school children. For seven years, since my very first day at school as a kindergartner, my school day began with four things. The Pledge of Allegiance to the Flag, the National Anthem, Bible Reading, and Prayer. When I began school in the fall of 1962, prayer and Bible reading were gone from the school day. On this day in 1962, in the ruling Engel versus Vitale, the United States Supreme Court banned official prayers in public schools on a case that was brought from New York saying that such prayers were unconstitutional as a violation of the separation of church and state. The debate over the impact of the decision has raged on ever since, but it's no real surprise that the vacuum that was left by this determination in the public schools has been filled with all sorts of things that we see today. You can imagine that it would have made little difference in the long run. Um, you can make that argument that uh, in a republic like, like ours, you could even say that it was a questionable practice to begin with. But it can also be argued that removing a sound moral influence from any institution leaves a gap that will inevitably be filled by an immoral one. And so by taking that out of the public school day, something was bound to fill in that spot. And we can see the kinds of things that are filling that spot. Now, we know that Jehovah, Jehovah God, is entertained by all this. And that seems like a strange way to put it. We're going over Psalm 2 in our small group Wednesday night, this past Wednesday night. And it was refreshing to remind ourselves that though the nations rage and the peoples imagine a vain thing, though the kings and rulers of the earth set themselves to take counsel and make rulings against the Lord and his anointed, though they say, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He who sits in heaven is entertained, is what it literally says there by what's going on. He states that he is entertained by these little gestures as though they really meant that they were now free from the reign of the Lord by just saying, we won't have the Lord reign over us anymore. The Lord can't reign over us. Um, that is entertaining to the Lord in a sense. Uh, simply because they say so doesn't make it happen. Because they undertake these rebellious acts and adopt some defiant pose doesn't really necessarily mean anything at all. The scripture not only declares God's sovereign authority over the nations in passages such as Psalm 66 and verse 7, 
where he's described as uh, the one who rules by his might forever, whose eyes keep watch on the nations. Let not the rebellious exalt themselves. We have declarations like that in the Psalms. We have another one, Psalm 22, verse 28. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. And yet another in Psalm 103, verse 19. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. So all those verses declare that he rules over the nations at all times. But it not only states that that's so in passages like these, but it also illustrates the fact in various historical contexts. And one of those is the one I want to call your attention to this afternoon, and we read it a moment ago, in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to those words again. (coughs) Excuse me. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. First of all, consider the times that we're talking about here. It's a little more than 500 years before Jesus was born. And... One very powerful man rules an empire that stretches from Pakistan to Romania, even into parts of Ukraine, from the Arabian Sea in the south to Russia in the north, and includes or has includes all of or at least parts of Nations like Egypt and Israel, really all the nations of the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, Afghanistan, Turkey, Saudi Arabia. It's a kingdom that runs from the Gobi Desert in the east to the Danube in the west. And he's the ruler over this vast kingdom. And that man's name was Cyrus. And he would be known to history as Cyrus the Great. It's Very difficult in our time today, uh, really, to deal in any detail with this great ruler. We can't say a whole lot. One biographer from Harvard describes him as the founder of a monarchy, perhaps the most wealthy and magnificent one the world has ever seen. So that this reign of Cyrus the Great was, he was a king over a, a, a kingdom, an empire, that was perhaps the greatest and wealthiest the world has seen. Another writes this, and I think this is in your notes there, Cyrus may be justly considered as the wisest conqueror and the most accomplished prince whose name occurs in secular history. He possessed all the qualities requisite to form a great man, wisdom, moderation, courage, magnanimity, noble sentiments, a wonderful ability in managing men's tempers and gaining their affections, a thorough knowledge of all the branches of the military art as far as that art as that age had carried it, a vast extent of genius and capacity for forming and an equal steadiness and uh, prudence for executing the greatest projects. I don't think you can say much more about a monarch than that. Uh, he's... Got every accolade I think imaginable there. That gives you an idea of 
who this man was and his standing in the world. The Iranian Chamber of Commerce today describes him as a great conqueror who at one point controlled one of the greatest empires ever seen. And I go on and quote observations made by scholars throughout history about Cyrus the Great. But the point is, Cyrus ruled over a substantial part of the world. He was a powerful and well-organized ruler, and he was as free to do whatever he wanted to do or he was inclined to do as any man or woman in the history of the world. He was so powerful that if he wanted to do it, he could do it. There was nobody who could restrain him or keep him from doing what he set his mind on. He used policy, he used laws, courts, and armies to implement his will around the world. And it was not safe or wise to resist him. When parts of his vast empire would revolt or resist, he just sent his powerful armies and generals to crush the rebellion and to dispatch the rebels. At the core of his army was a a unit called the Immortals, and they were 10,000 troops that served in his lifeguard. And they had that name, the Immortals, because they were known to be quite ruthless. Another historian observes this. As the Persian Empire grew, its military strengthened. Cyrus developed an elite corps of mounted warriors who were skilled at shooting arrows on horseback and deployed war chariots with blades attached to the wheels. You understand the significance of that, right? You're driving your chariot, and here's the wheel. There's a sharp blade sticking out from there. You drive that chariot into a group of infantry, and those blades are going to take out those who are standing on either side. His troops seem to have been highly motivated and well-trained, and Cyrus himself appears to have been an inspirational leader. Um, John Lee says this. He's a professor of history at the University of California in Santa Barbara. He said that he seems to have been able to move his armies more rapidly than enemies anticipated, even during winter. So why am I saying all this about the time? Because I want you to understand who this man is before we go forward. Cyrus is known for allowing and encouraging a great deal of freedom, and he's considered by many to be the first such ruler to acknowledge human rights. He kind of gets that accolade attached on too. If you go to human rights websites, you'll see that it mentions the first ruler who recognized people's human rights was Cyrus the Great. And uh, Though that's true, and he was the first to acknowledge human rights, you should understand and make no mistake about the fact that this so-called freedom was enjoyed subject to, quote, the despotic authority of the sovereign, which means that if you said you wanted to go somewhere and he decided you shouldn't, you didn't. So yes, you all have freedom. You can go anywhere you want except for you. You can't go where you want to go. And he could stop that with just his authority. He held unquestionable authority over all life and property. And one of the mottos of of his kingdom was, all may move freely, with this caveat, subject to the absolute authority of the great king. You're all welcome to move freely, 
but I'm in charge. You can only go at my word. So this is the man who we're talking about here as, as the book of Ezra opens. This is the power he has. This is the reputation he has. This is the kind of person he is. So what's the issue that Ezra brings forward? Well, the issue is that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah has to be fulfilled. That's the issue. And what you see is this this man, Cyrus the Great, saying, you all have freedom to move however you want as long as I'm okay with it. But above him is a sovereign who says to Cyrus, you have freedom to move according to my will according to my absolute authority. And right now is time for the fulfillment of my word through the prophet Jeremiah. And the Lord had said by his prophet that at the end of 70 years, his Israel would be released from the control of Babylon, which had conquered them, and that they would be restored to their own land. You see that in Jeremiah 25, verses 11 through 12. So this is Jeremiah speaking, uh, the Lord speaking through Jeremiah, and he says, This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. Then, after seventy years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. We come from chapter 25, to chapter 29 of Jeremiah. And again, the same message is coming forward. This is Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your, your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So thus, at the very moment that Belshazzar, who is the king of Babylon, determined to make an open mockery of God and his honor. He brought out all of the vessels that had been captured by the Babylonians in the temple. He brought them out into a drunken banquet. And just at the moment he was mocking God that way, the 70th year dawned. And so that night, Belshazzar died because the word of the Lord to Jeremiah has to be fulfilled and so on that night he dies and in the very first year of his reign over Babylon Cyrus orders the fulfillment of God's promise through Jeremiah so just dwell on that for a moment and think about it here's this man who in the eyes of the world has absolute authority and power He can do whatever he wants. There's nobody who can restrain him. There's nobody who can restrict him in what he plans to do. If somebody rebels, he crushes them. That's the kind of power Cyrus possesses. He's an independent character. 
But he needs to be in submission to Jehovah and his will and his word. And he is made so by the hand of God. Despite that he's in this powerful position. As one commentator points out, Jeremiah was despised and hated in his day. Jeremiah had practically no power at all in the day in which he was prophesying. People wouldn't listen to him. They put him in jail. They tortured him. They sent him into exile. They threatened him with death. Jeremiah himself seemed to be the weakest of prophets. And yet here, the whole world is going to be moved in order to fulfill his word because of God's promise through him and by him. It's an amazing thing to think about. Here he is despised and hated, but all the while remembered by God. And now his name and his honor as a prophet and faithful servant of the Lord are going to be acknowledged. God is going to take Cyrus and move him to do something that God wants him to do that he had said he would do through Jeremiah the prophet to Israel's blessing and the wonder of the world. The hour for these things had come. And so they began to unfold. They begin to unfold, first of all, because this was absolutely necessary. This was, after all, beloved, a matter of the word of God. Though Cyrus was a servant, it didn't matter who was the king or what the geopolitical circumstances were or anything else. The word of God must and will be fulfilled. It will not return empty, as Isaiah 55 says, but it will accomplish that which he purposes, and it will succeed in the thing for which he sends it. And when it says here that the word of Jeremiah must be fulfilled, it's not just in that sense, that sort of a passive sense. It's in a very overt and powerful sense. This has to happen because God said it would. There's nothing that can keep this from happening because God in his word promised it would happen. It's not just a matter of the honor of his word. It's a matter of the authority of that word. This is the God who said, let there be light. And there was light. And he says, this is going to happen in the 70th year. I'm going to visit you and deliver you. It can't be thwarted. It can't be defied. Circumstances, beloved, do not control the fulfillment of God's word. His word controls circumstances. Let me repeat that again because it's really important. Circumstances do not control the fulfillment of God's word. His word controls circumstances. (coughs) We really should never view God's will and purposes as being like an arm wrestling match uh, with evil forces, human or spiritual, or with time and circumstance so that sometimes he's forced to hurry up what he promises and sometimes he's forced to slow down what he promises. It's more accurate to picture him as he is, an absolute sovereign who makes time and circumstance serve his purposes 
and who uses the wicked to serve himself and his glory. In Proverbs 16.4 it says, The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. So when we say it was necessary for the Lord's word to Jeremiah to be fulfilled, <clears throat> excuse me, we mean much more than, than this, that it had to happen to honor God's word. It had to happen, beloved, because it was God's word. That's why it had to happen. And just because it was his word, these things must happen. So what's the result? The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all the kingdom and also put it in writing so that nobody could deny it. Once it was written, it was law. So although he was an absolute monarch and perhaps the most powerful man on earth at the time, Cyrus was under the sovereign authority of another, of your God. In fact, before Cyrus took his place on earth, his sovereign referred to him. A hundred years before Cyrus lived, the Lord said through the prophet Isaiah this. This is Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. So here is the sovereign over Cyrus, referring to him before he is even here in the world, and indicating that this is what he is going to do. It said of Cyrus, Alan the commentator says, that he knew not God, nor how to serve him, but God knew him, and now, and how to serve himself by Cyrus. And so the hour came for Cyrus's specific employment in the fulfillment of God's word to Jeremiah. And because the king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord, and he turns it wherever he will, he turns this man's heart. And John Allen reminds us that God governs the world by his influence on the spirits of men. And whatever good is done at any time, it is God that stirs up the spirit to do it, puts thoughts into the mind, gives to the understanding to form a right judgment, and directs the will which way he pleases. And that in turn reminds you and me to be careful to remember Paul's admonition to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, in verses 1 and 2, Paul says this, First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Be praying for those who are over you. You never know what the Lord's purpose is in using that individual. And it doesn't matter who they are. doesn't matter what their thinking is or, or the way they intend to operate. 
When God fulfills his word through them, that word is fulfilled. Trapp says, the Lord stirred up the spirit. It was the mighty and immediate work of God in whose hand are the hearts of all, both kings and captives, lords and lowlies, he says. This is the Lord working. And notice that the decree was the direct result of the Lord working in the heart of the man. And he ordered exactly what God had promised. You see it there in verses 2 through 3. Thus Cyrus, the king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. Now this is interesting because we know that this action wasn't limited to the people of Israel. That Cyrus had this attitude. That's why he's known as the, the sort of the father of human rights. He ordered this for other peoples that had been displaced by the Babylonians. He reversed this, this plan of taking people from the place where they lived and taking them to some other land so that they'd be separated from the patriotism and the attachment to their homeland. Well, he reversed that, that process and let people go back, not just Israel, but others as well. But it's Alexander McLaren who helps us to understand this in context. Our passage, he says, digs deeper to find the true cause. Cyrus was God's instrument, and the statesman's insight was the result of God's illumination. In other words, God's working in the heart of Cyrus, and he moves him to return Israel, and he does that in just a general spirit of the man. With the sinking of a stylus, in a tablet of clay, Israel, free of its idolatry, is liberated from its exile and allowed to return home. John Trapp says, this was the Lord's own work and it was justly marvelous in the eyes of his people who could hardly believe their own eyes but were for a while like those who dream. I couldn't believe that this was the judgment. This was coming down to them. This was, everything changed according to the word of the Lord. So why have I brought you to this passage this afternoon? Well, for two reasons, just quickly here. First, the proclamation of Cyrus regarding the liberty of Israel is in many ways like the proclamation of the gospel itself. By the power of the word of God, it is the fulfillment of a promise. We were in bondage to sin and death and Satan himself. Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 through 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. The proclamation of the gospel is the same. We can hardly believe it. We can hardly believe that we've been liberated from all these things by the declaration of God. And yet it's the fulfillment of his word. 
That gospel brings us home to the sacred precincts and the fellowship of God that we enjoy through Jesus Christ. Only a relative few heard and took advantage of this proclamation from Cyrus. Too many were at home in their exile, but those who heard went home rejoicing. Secondly, this sets before you, beloved, a true philosophy of history. As uh, McLaren puts it, he says, the word percolates in an agitated state, excuse me, the world percolates in an agitated state. And events unfold, and what seems to be unpredictable, in what seems to be unpredictable ways. But there is behind it all, whether it appears deliberate or coincidental, or even arbitrary, one who for his own glory and according to his own purposes, driven by no other, brings things to pass as he wills. And that's going on as much in our world today as it ever has. And listen to what he says again. The world percolates in an agitated state, and events unfold in what seem to be unpredictable ways. But there is behind it all, whether it appears deliberate or just coincidental, or even arbitrary, there is behind it one who for his own glory and according to his own purposes, and driven by no one else but his own will, bring things to pass as he will. Rulers, prime ministers, dictators, and legislators act freely, seldom conscious of God in any form, but they're still his servants, serving his divine designs. McLaren says once more, it concerns our tranquility and hopefulness in the contemplation of the bewildering maze and often heartbreaking tragedy of mundane affairs to hold fast by the conviction that God's unseen hand moves the pieces on the board and presides over all the complications. It's important to our tranquility, to our peace of mind, and to our hopefulness that we look at history and the present day as it unfolds in this light. It seems arbitrary, it seems wild and loose, but there's a hand upon it all, even a hand over Cyrus, so that on the appointed time, Cyrus has to be moved because God's word has to be fulfilled. In Psalm 62, verses 5 through 8, some of my favorite verses, it says, For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress, I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. Trust in him at all times. O people, pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. He's a refuge for the peace of our minds, even in the most unsettling of times. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the power and authority of your word. It's not just that it will be honored, and we know it will, because it is your word. But it relates also, Lord, to the very fact that it is your word. And when you speak, 
things happen. When you speak, your word is perfectly fulfilled. Father, we thank you for the words you've spoken to us to come and to believe and to know life through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the promise that we have, that all things are working together for our good. That's your word, and that is what is happening for every one of us. And, Father, we thank you for the promise we have that a great end is coming in which our joys will be inexpressible as we walk and rejoice in the presence of our King forever and ever. Thank you, Lord, for giving us this insight in this one scene. And we pray, Lord, that you would allow us to take it to heart as we watch things unfold even in the week ahead of us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.